What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to episode 103 of the Lombard Trucking Show. Very glad to be here. Thank you all for joining me, whether you're live or you're listening later on pre-recorded. It is currently Thursday, December 14th, and hope you enjoyed the last episode uh, with the executive VP over there, Megan Earhart over at Relay Payments. They've got a great, great thing going on there, especially if you are a small carrier looking to cut costs on there, especially with reducing your risks over there at the fuel pump. I know diesel prices have come down uh, recently at a Circle K in Austin, Texas. I have seen a cash price for diesel at 297 something I haven't seen in quite some time. So once again, definitely go check out what they've got going on at Relay Payments uh, and get yourself set up there if you're a carrier uh, looking to hopefully save some time and money while you're fueling up those trucks out there. Number one, first and foremost, I do just want to kind of give a small uh, few moments here to touch on what today's date is. Today's December 14th. It's a date very uh, near and dear to my heart. It is the anniversary of the uh, shooting at Sandy Hook, something that myself and a lot of members of the University of New Haven lacrosse and hockey team uh, were very close to. Uh, Just uh, mere days after that tragedy, we had all traveled to Newtown to go spend time with the students over there at uh, who were students at Sandy Hook. And we played at a, a youth center with them uh, and met a, a bunch of the families, uh, families who knew the, uh, the victims very, very well. And it was a very moving experience, very real. Uh, it humanized a lot of things uh, in my life. And it was a big wake up call. Um, it's a very horrible tragedy, um, something that uh, hopefully we can work towards improving. And just a message to this holiday season, especially, as it gets darker sooner to always spread a good positivity to spread positivity and spread as much love as you can this holiday season. So just uh, go out there and, and be kind to somebody, but I'd be remiss to not bring that up today, that anniversary. And those kids now are, you know, they're, they're, they're graduating high school. It's pretty, pretty wild concept to, to think about, but without any further delay, let's get right into, into today's episode. Got an awesome guest on here. Uh, who works for Gnosis Freight. And now Gnosis Freight deals a lot in ocean container freight. And it's something that I've been really wanting to dive deep into on the show because we talk about trucks, we talk about uh, railroads, we've talked about so many things. And domestically, when it comes to America's highways, as complicated as the highways are, now blow it up to the entire freaking planet of what we've got with oceans. Uh, You know, the highways in America are at least very regulated, heavily regulated with way stations and all this sort of stuff. But the oceans overall are lawless. But somehow, you know, the, for the product still gets this country on containers from all over the world, on ships from all over the world. And it's really a fascinating thing that I think we take for granted. So without any further delay, I want to bring the CTO of Gnosis Freight right up onto the show, Mr. Jake Hoffman himself. Let's bring it on in. What's happening? How's it going, man? Glad to be here. Yes. No, glad to have you here. So where, where are you coming out of? You're in Charleston? Yeah, in Charleston, South Carolina, you can't you can't really see it, but the the Ravenel Bridge and the harbor is right outside the window. Um, we're right downtown, right on the peninsula, and got the ocean terminal right out on the other side of the water, right there. Now that's awesome. I, I got to ask before we dive into it was uh, why why Charleston, so to speak. I know Charleston's a great town. I've I've spent a little bit of time there, but uh, you know, there's a lot of ports out there. I know Gnosis. You guys have been around uh, how many years now? Have you guys been in business? Uh, our CEO Austin started the business in 2017, so about six years. So, yeah. so fairly new. And is is he from is he from the area originally? Is that why you got Charleston, or how come how come no other port? Yeah, we uh, 
we moved here, I think it was kind of by accident, you know, Austin uh, came to Charleston because there was a freight forwarder we were working with that was in Charleston. And the plan was to come here for a year or two. Um, and, and he was, he was doing it. And then I came in, in 2018 to come, to come kind of work with him. And the plan was probably do that for a year or two and then maybe move to Atlanta or somewhere. Cause I was in Atlanta before and he'd been there a little bit. Uh, and then we just fell in love with the city and decided, you know what, we're just going to stay here and tell everybody if they want to work at Gnosis, they got to live here and been here ever since. No, that's awesome. I, I definitely always root for companies that uh, have decided to either uproot or move themselves into like medium sized cities. Uh, you know, I some gentlemen I'm going to have on the show from Repower, like Repower deals with a trailer, trailer rental. Those those guys are great. And they're they're in Chattanooga. So it's great yep. to see. I love seeing, uh, I feel like in transportation, especially any sort of business can thrive in these medium sized cities. Like instead of going to Chicago, maybe go to Toledo, Ohio or something like that. So I, I think it's cool that nice. you guys, that you guys are there, but, um, let, you know, let's get right into it, man. So what's, what's your story? How did you get in the chair you're sitting with? Where, where are you from? How'd you, how'd you wind up in ocean container freight? Cause I'm sure it wasn't your dream at 17 years old that, to be working in this role. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it's funny. I, I feel like uh, you and I kind of talked briefly before the show about, I feel like most people that we talk to and, you know, I, I'm a freight nerd. I listen to, to your show. I listen to all the freight wave shows and every podcast and get my, my hands on. Um, but every time I talk to or hear somebody talk, they're always like, yeah, well, you know, I was doing something else and I just kind of stumbled into it. And same story here. You know, it was, I was a uh, studied chemical engineering at Auburn University. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. Then I kind of changed my mind and thought I wanted to work in oil and gas. Uh, I actually did. Uh, went to Auburn, then moved to Houston for a little while, did the oil and gas thing. Um, and then what went, came, decided to come back to Atlanta to go to Georgia Tech for grad school. I didn't like the engineering stuff. I wanted to get into finance. So I studied uh, quantitative finance at Georgia Tech, thought I wanted to go be a stock trader. And I was about to move to Chicago to trade options and stuff. And then Austin, our, our CEO, and I had been in touch because I'd been keeping up with some of the cool stuff that he was doing. And uh, he was like, hey, you know, for your, your I had to do an internship when I was at Georgia Tech. And Austin was just kind of like, hey, what if you just came to Charleston and worked with me on kind of what I'm like, come help me do what I'm doing for a free summer. And so I, I literally like sublet an apartment from a medical student that was in med school here. Austin had like a fold up table and sticky notes on the wall and stuff. And that, that was really where Nosa started. You know, he'd been working on it for a little while and I came and we just kind of took it from there. And it's become what it is now. See that's the, that those are the stories that are that are awesome and you you almost have a similar story as uh, Megan Earhart from from Relay Payments having gone to something for going to school for something kind of unrelated she you know she was an, an engineering person uh, as well and I, I you know and it's my own show but it was like civil engineering or some something yeah. like that and then ends up working for you know pilot and flying J and so that's the thing. But you, by any stretch of the means, in the oil and gas industry, there's a there's a whole bunch of places you can go uh, in the oil and gas industry, and so many places, and so many roles, probably in engineering you can go, whether at the executive level or working in the oil field, working in Houston, working up in Big Sky Country, wh wherever it may be. Yeah, yeah. Just with that's the thing. People get this job, off, people get into this industry off of like who who you end up knowing and who you're meeting, and then they start something. They, you know, they have this idea, they start something and then they pull, they, they contact their friends and be like, Hey, you need to ride, you need to ride this with me. At least give it a shot. I love it. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy. And, and I, I think of it all the time is like, 
you know, it's almost like uh, the largest thing ever that's always right in front of you that you don't pay attention to. You know, for me, is like I never paid attention to an ocean terminal or a big container ship, right? It's like I knew it existed and I was like, oh, like, you know, that's cool. It's like logistics, something. It's just like this gray area. Now, you know, my wife makes fun of me is like every time we drive by an ocean terminal or something, I'm like, you know, glued to the window. Like how many cranes do they have? And, you know, oh, that's that's one of the new 16,000 TU vessels and taking pictures and stuff. And it's funny. It's like it was always there. But now that, you know, we live in this world, I pay so much attention to it and nerd out on it all the time. So, yeah, it, likewise, that's me driving by like any truck stop or looking at that truck like being like, ah, oh, this guy's probably going to fail an inspection or just like knowing, <laughs> knowing the context of what's, what's going on. And uh, it's funny you say that it's crazy. You say that about how it's going on and good friend of the show, Gordon McGill, he has a show voice of Gord. If you, if you haven't checked it out, he's got a really yeah. good one, especially on the trucking side, but he, he has had a gentleman on who's a, he's from the UK popular Substack. His name is, he calls himself the Loriest. And he said that in one of his recent Substacks. he's like, transportation is literally everywhere all around you and nobody knows anything about it. And, I, right. and it's, and it's still, even in the information age of what we have going on still with all the advocacy that we do in our organizations, when it comes to driving, like the politicians, the people who work at large carry, like, like the disconnect between how much, how, how big this industry is and about how just people just don't know a thing about it, but it just works is just, is, is, is mind blowing. It is. Yeah, I, I love that. you. I love that you nerd out because even since I've been back to Connecticut, I see I mean, tankers pull into New Haven all the time. Uh, and there's and there's big oil, uh, you know, uh, tanks in the port of New Haven, you could see and they bring them in. And I remember the first time I really got curious about ocean container freight because I was curious was in, I lived in West Haven. And this is just real, real quick before we get into what Gnosis does. But it, it's just I just thought it was so cool that we lived above this Turkish market in West Haven. And the guy who owned it, really, really great guy, nicest dude in the world. He comes back and he's pulling these uh, uh, blue like barrels, small blue kind of plastic type barrels off. And they're full of like olives, uh, I believe. Some were olives, some like stuff like that. And I was like, oh, I was like, where'd you get that? And he said that he got it from the, the port of New Haven, that they came in on a ship. And I was like, wow. here's this guy, here this guy is like, owns a little niche, like Turkish market, in a, in a, in a small, you know, well, it's a city, 50,000 people in, yeah. in Connecticut. And here he is bringing them and he goes down to the port to go. He must, he must deal with some sort of broker in some aspect, but like the idea of him going to get food that comes in right off a ship. I'm like, that's nuts. It comes right into my town, comes right into this city. That's wild. I mean, he's just, he's importing, you know, olives or whatever it was, which is crazy. You know, I may, maybe there was some kind of, it was a, you know, an LCL shipment, you know, the less than container load where he just, ship the barrel of olives or whatever it was but that's so cool yeah it's it's amazing you know there's like people talk about the facts of like you know look around the room like you know the picture frames and the the shelf behind me the desk and stuff 90 95 percent of all these things were in an ocean container at some point just really cool right and it's like came from somewhere around the world was in an ocean container a truck picked it up at uh, at the origin point, picked it up at the destination. Maybe it went on the rail. It's, it's just really cool that all that stuff works all the time. Right. Yeah. Oh, no, but it, it Reed says it best read from, you know, lost freight is that this industry and I've, and I've repeated this on the show, but the industry is like run by, you know, these crazy, you know, crazy truck drivers. Cause we're all crazy. We all have these stories and 
tr- you know, truck drivers with the toothpicks and everything and all these stories, you know, they're essentially like um, the last American cowboys. You have them, you have like Zen fueled uh, brokers who were working, you know, or recent college grads who are ringing gongs and then all this screaming and yelling at each other. But at the end of the day, your wife can leave right now and go fill up her tank, fill up her car tank and can go get a bag of potato chips. And it's, it's going to be there no matter all the screaming and all the stuff that's just flying back and forth. It's, it still happens. I, I love it. It does. It gets me fired up. That's funny. You mentioned that the Zen fuel of brokers and stuff. I love that. Uh, like Reed puts something on LinkedIn, like, you know, day in the life of a, a broker. And it was like, wake up, cold plunge, Zen, cold brew. Like, <laughs> it's, it's, that stuff's so funny. Yeah, the Sigma, Sigma, the Sigma grind set uh, trolling. Yeah. I love that yeah. stuff. But exactly. let's uh, let's dive right into it. So Gnosis Freight, you wind up there you with your CEO, Austin. You guys yep. come together. Why do you start Gnosis Freight? What's what's the Gnosis story? Yeah, I, so he started it um, really at the very beginning. He So he studied supply chain and data science at Auburn. Um, so his, you know, career trajectory, he actually studied what he does now, which is, you know, not, not like I can say at all, but... Uh, he got connected with a freight forwarder here in Charleston. And the entire goal of Gnosis at the beginning was he knew that there was a way to take the data science stuff that he had learned and apply it in a real way to, to businesses. And originally he was doing some inventory optimization stuff and it was really focused on customers of the freight forwarders. So the freight forwarder was like a sales channel for him to talk to uh, retailers and people that were importing and things to help them with inventory management. Um, and then it got to like, hey, well, we're writing code to do this let's write code to help the freight forwarder. So we literally wrote like automating emails, like the freight forwarder would receive an email from an ocean carrier about a specific shipment. And we'd read the subject line and like send it to the right account manager or something. You know, it was like an invoice would come in and we'd make sure it went to the accounting team, just like simple internal automation stuff that we were doing, right? Um, and that, that's we're kind of where it started. We gradually, you know, got to the point where the operations people, the freight forwarder were like, hey, instead of, sending me all the information. Can we like put it in a portal and show it to our customers? Um, and so that was where it became like, we were the tech of the freight forwarder, like facing the customer so they could log in and track their shipments and do stuff. Um, and then gradually from there, so there's so many iterations to, to what we've done at Gnosis, but from there it was shipper focus. The shipper was like, Hey, what, what would I have with this freight forwarder is awesome. Well, now we want to, uh, we want to do that with all of our shipments. You know, if, if I ship it with, Kunanagel or go direct to CMA or Maersk or a big ocean carrier. I want all my shipments in this so that I can manage it here. And so that's what our product is today that there's been a million other iterations since then, but that's like the story of how we got to where we are. No, that's pretty awesome. So you'd say that now say Gnosis, say you got, say this never happened. And yep. what kind of like, so if you guys didn't exist, Austin doesn't dive into this in 2017, this doesn't exist. There'd be, there would still be just bad communication issues going on and people would be just fighting over this data that they're yeah. looking for, looking to consolidate. Yeah. And I mean, you know, uh, we're, we're not all the way there yet. You know, we, we, our customers, we think are happy, but there are so many containers and so many things going on in the world. The, the SOP for operating and moving containers around the world is still emailing spreadsheets everywhere. You know, that's mm-hmm. the main thing that we try to eliminate is like, it doesn't matter who you're moving freight with or anything. There's always going to be some communication that's like, hey, I need an Excel report of uh, what containers I have arriving at the port, right? Th- those are the processes we're trying to eliminate. 
by putting it all in you know one place so people can go look at it but then people have kind of done that before right and so then we we go an extra step it's like hey we're not only going to put it in one place we're going to go get all the data for you too it's like we have the the track and trace the data engine of tracking containers around the world um we took it on ourselves you know we had bought some data from providers and done edi integrations with ocean carriers and things like that but uh over the course of the past few years we've put it on ourselves to not only have the platform but have the data that supports it so like we do all the data integrations with the ocean carriers the individual terminals ocean terminals themselves the class one rail carriers in north america um, and we do that we do all this stuff behind the scenes organize the data figure out what milestones are best and what's important put predictions moving forward to give people an idea of when they can expect things to arrive um, so we do all that and then in addition show it to our customers in a platform because i mean if you can build a great platform but if you're like hey everybody you got to come in here and you got to give us all this data the customer can get it and then it's just like well what do i do with it now you know i have this cool platform but the data is crap uh so we we kind of do both and we we think the the data piece of it is super important um if you don't have good data then you know what what good is the platform right yeah, absolutely. And so what you're and what you're talking about right now is what you offer is that which is that container lifecycle management program. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's and now, you know, we, no go on. I was gonna say so that's where our our CRO Michael like kind of coined this term because we we found that like people in the industry and 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 you know in domestic transportation as well, you know, you talk about visibility all the time. You hear visibility, visibility, people say it all the time. And we felt like we were just another person screaming visibility and that at that point, no one was going to listen. And so the way that we differentiate that is it's not just like telling you where stuff is. It's giving you the ability to actually manage it. And so that managing the life cycle of the container, it's not just telling you, hey, it's on a ship. It's at this point. But did it clear customs yet? Have you assigned a, a drayage uh, trucker to go to go pick it up? Um, is there paperwork associated with it? What time did it actually, when did it actually, the PO get dispersed to the factory? And so there's all these things outside the actual visibility of the movement of the container that go into that management of the life cycle. And that's what we really doubled down on. And Michael coined that term. And now I think it's becoming more prevalent that there's the life cycle, the container life cycle management is, the, is a perfect way to describe how we approach that problem. Awesome. So no, this did see, this is pretty fascinating stuff. So I, and I'm curious about it on the trucking side. So are sure. your, do like, who are the majority of your customers? Are the majority of your customers, motor carriers working in container freight, moving drayage, or are your customers still are ocean, ocean liners, or are they, or, or do you work with manufacturers? Are you working with all of them? Yeah. The short answer is everybody, you know, and it, it's kind of, a symptom of like trying super hard to solve the problem for shippers. You know, that was our, our main customer, our ideal customer profile forever has been the importer. You know, we, we work with exporters too now, which is a, a completely different problem, but at least on the import side, it was any large company importing containers, a retailer, you know, that anybody doing that, that was our ideal customer, helping them manage the flow of everything, making sure that they tell uh, truckers to go pick up containers and things. But then when we really, dive into the weeds of what the customer's problems were and we get that data problem correct we we literally organically we're working with a retailer and then they're they're telling their truckers hey this container is a custom sold you can't pick it up yet and then naturally the trucker's like well how do you know that and it just kind of iterated from there we have we sell the just the tracking data to 
drayage providers, uh, both carriers themselves, actual motor carriers. We sell it to brokers. Um, we sell the data to other software providers in our space. Uh, freight forwarders use it for their systems. Uh, and so that, that data piece is ubiquitous. You know, if, if we, we really double down and feel like we've gotten really good at understanding and, you know, going between the weeds of what all this container data means. And then that's really opened the door for us to have that as a revenue stream for all the different parties. And I kind of, and th this is awesome because I wish I kind of had access to the, to this data because I was that trucker at one point, because there, there was a point in time where I was uh, empty uh, waiting for a, a reload and there were loads that were supposed to become available out of out of the port of Baltimore, and yep. they were. But they're waiting on. A lot of times, what holds back being able to get freight out of Baltimore is this go, going through customs. And I remember having this conversation with my, you know, with my fleet manager when I was uh, contracted through Warren Transport. And now I'm yep. curious. And so I asked, basically, I'm asking, you know, is did. <laughs> Did Warren, I'm wondering if Warren Transport was a customer of yours and if they they were able to see that data, because at least for my fleet manager, he was always just like, I never know how I'll, I'll never know how long it takes at customs. He's like, sometimes it could take this long. Sometimes it could take two weeks. Sometimes it could take a week. He doesn't really know. And so I'm curious how much of a benefit this could be for motor carriers, especially carriers working in op open deck the uh, open deck freight, even even outside of containers. Well, I'd assume though that even those large tractors still must come in a container. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, there's, that's, yeah, yeah. Part, you know, it's, I, I don't know. You know, that some of the the brake bulk shipping and things that are different than just the container. We've explored that. A lot of the data sources we have uh, apply to that as well. You know, there, there's all different kinds of things. So you're you're totally right. And there's probably some more. Uh, I guess, verticals and things that we could get into with a lot of the data sources we have. Another example of something that we, you know, we start just on the international container piece, right? But then if we go to the class ones, you know, we talk to the BNSF and UP and CSX and, and those guys, there's an entire world of intermodal domestic rail moves that we now have the ability to track. Um, and, you know, it's the, it goes to a rail terminal in Chicago and it's whether it's a domestic, a 53 foot, you know, hub group container moving on UP or CSX, we can track that too. And so that's just something we kind of stumbled into where I was like, hey, this this data actually is really useful for markets that we haven't ever talked to before. Um, and this is so this is any container, even the containers you're seeing that are on the freight trains that we yeah. I see go through Austin all the time. This is the the JB Hunts containers, right. the the CSX, the uh, the Costco containers like this is not just the ones that are because i'd imagine that some of the well, containers probably get thrown around i'd love to i'd love to see the life kind of like how sometimes people have the stamp on a dollar bill it says yeah. you know, where was george.com i think some of them have i'd love to see the life the, the true life cycle of a container from yeah. its manufacture date to how where around the world that container has gone because i'm sure containers that go on train probably wind up back on a ship. Right. And probably yeah, I mean, wind that's up in another country. So the, you know, the standard for ocean shipping is 40 foot, right? That's like where it's, it is forever, the 40 foot container. They, they measured in TEU. So there's like the 20 foot and the 40 foot, but 40 foot's the, the majority of them, right? Well, that was the case. And then the 53 foot was all the domestic, the JB Hunt containers, Walmart has their own container. You know, there's all these different ones that are the 53 foot. But then, you know, a couple of years ago when things got crazy, uh, 
JB Hunt, Amazon, people like that started shipping things overseas in 53 foot containers. So it's the, the stuff that was just going between like LA and Chicago or Dallas or Atlanta and those like intermodal domestic moves, all of a sudden we're on a ship going to China, getting loaded up with stuff and coming back to the US on the a 53 foot JB Hunt container. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it used to just be forties and then things got crazy a couple of years ago and all, all bets are off. You can move containers wherever, no matter the size. Yeah. And I, and I, and I want to get into that last couple of years, but I, but, but, and this will kind of segue us into it is I, I kind of brought up recently waiting on a loads because of customs and it, right. whether you know or not, I'm curious. So what does that, what does that process look like? Like say, cause John Deere manufactures tractors in Germany. And, and, and this is crazy to me and you, I, you or I, I don't know, I don't know who knows this answer because I think it's crazy, yeah. but I once, I once delivered a tractor from uh, Waterloo, Iowa, where also John Deere tractors are made to the port of Baltimore. And that was going to Antwerp, Belgium. And, uh, you know, it was going on a ship that was going to Antwerp. I, I simultaneously, and this is, I was really lucky. I was picking up another tractor that came from Germany. And that tractor was going to South Dakota. Now, I it, it's just I don't know how this works. Maybe it has to do with parts or the model types. And I'm sure John Deere maybe can answer this. But I think it's funny that a tractor made like how come a tractor that was going to Belgium didn't just get a tractor from Germany? And how yeah. come the John Deere store in South Dakota just doesn't have the tractor made in Waterloo? I don't get I don't get that, but that like and maybe nobody knows the answer. But what I'm looking for is what does that process look like at customs? Like what is like when something goes through customs? Because I've gone, you know, you've gone through it. If you fly to Mexico, I've been to Europe, you yeah. know, your bags, you have to get, you know, your passport stamped. What does it look like for a container entering the U.S., whether it be on, on a, what, what, especially when it's on coming off a ship? Yeah, I mean, that's probably. You know, that, that form that you fill out that you're used to, that's like the, you know, you bring in any livestock with you or fruits and vegetables or anything that could possibly introduce some kind of virus or something from a different country that the U.S. That, that, so you fill out the same exact form for stuff that's coming in a container. Right. So it's still the same stuff. Um, but for ocean shipping, what happens, I'd say 90. I don't know if it's 90 percent or 99 percent, but high majority of the time you file an ISF which this is a, a newer thing after 9-11 called an ISF, importer security filing. So before it leaves, say it's coming from Vietnam, it's furniture coming from Vietnam. Before it leaves Vietnam, you have to file an ISF, which is you telling the U.S. government, hey, it was made by this factory in Vietnam. I'm buying it. It's coming to the port of Charleston. Um, you know, like all the just the general details of the shit and it's furniture. You put like a, an H, a HS, the harmonized tariff, like, hey, it's this it's wooden furniture, for example. Right. So you do that first. And that's like the first uh, confirmation with you telling the U.S. government that you're bringing something. Then when it's on the water coming in, the you, most people use a customs broker. You know, people I, someone made the analogy a while ago of like a customs broker is like a lawyer. You could do it yourself. You know, you could go to the courtroom and, and defend yourself, but you're probably better off getting a lawyer. And so if you're not a huge company that has an in-house kind of someone that's licensed as a customs broker, use a customs broker. The customs person will get all the paperwork together about what it's made of, how much does it cost, um, you know, the all the more details than just that ISF thing. And then submits that to U.S. Customs using either a software um, like we do a lot of those things or using another software or you can do it directly on the customs website and you're submitting that form, the one that you're talking about. 
Mm-hmm. So 90, you know, whatever it is, 90 to 99% of the time, it's fine. And U.S. Customs come back and says everything looks good. And you just go and it, the container gets to the Baltimore. You know, we'll use the Baltimore example. It's cleared. You can go pick it up. Everything's all good. But then sometimes if there's like something in the entry was wrong or something raised a red flag to U.S. Customs, that's when it goes into an exam. And it'll get... That's what it'll get held up. They'll bring it off the port. Maybe, maybe they do it in the port if they have an examination area. Um, but that's where things get hairy is like, if it has to be exam, if, go through an exam, does the customer start to pay demurrage? You know, we haven't even talked about demurrage yet where a container sits at the terminal and then you have to pay to get it out. Um, Cause it's, you know, whose fault is it that, that there is something sketchy about the container and U.S. Customs has to do it. But I'd say, you know, 90 to 99% of the time, whatever it is, nothing really happens. You file that form and it's all fine. But if anything happens where something's wrong and U.S. Customs has to kind of step in, that's that's where, you know, the unknown comes up, right? And that's what's, that's what's I think, the most frightening that I think people don't get is because, I mean, I've seen these ships and I see how many containers on them. And how is it not, how is that, I'm sure demerge happens often. It does. But how, like, but how it's still, like, but still the volume, the volume of how many containers are moving on ships, because there's probably, I mean, how many ships are on the ocean right now sailing with containers? Yeah, I mean, thousands and thousands. And all of the, the thousands of ships have thousands of containers. You know, it's crazy. I mean, you look at some of those like, you know, marine traffic or vessel tracker, any of those things, you you open it on your computer and it's just a map, a giant globe of different colors of ships and everything. And on in in each container isn't just one shipment. It can have multiple things. Right. That have to go through customs. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it just seems it seems almost too big of some. It seems too big for it to actually work. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. You know, it, it's, it is wild that it all works. It's wild that all the stuff, you know, in my office in here and at your house and, where, and wherever, like all these things were in a container at one point, they all have customs entries, you know, someone, a broker, the person who was importing, whoever filed that same form uh, to get something here, you know, and another so funny, yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's trying to see where that's made. Yeah. The, and then to uh, the customs thing, uh, one of our employees, uh, Brandon Tubes is one of our employees, one of our engineers, he has on, on his desk, he printed out the U.S. Customs entry for the moon rocks. So when we when the, the astronauts went to the moon and they took, you know, samples of, of stuff like, you know, actual like, you know, moon dust or whatever you want to call it, they had to file an entry with U.S. Customs. And so there's like literally a piece of paper that's that's in the, you know, at the Customs and Border Protection that's like, you know, what country did this come from? It's like N.A. and then origin just says moon. <laughs> so I was it's, it's say, what the point of origin is not a legal, uh, <laughs> it's not a sovereign nation. So, it literally says well, moon on it. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, hilarious. How, how can you legally import something from a place that has no has no sovereign government? You can't verify. You can't verify the, the moon's legitimacy. Who, yeah. Who was, I was just I was laughing. It's like. I mean, it makes sense, I guess, but it's like, it's so funny that like we made Neil Armstrong or whoever fill out paperwork for the samples who's bringing back for U.S. Customs. It's pretty funny. That, that's that, that's actually pretty dope. I'm glad you went into that because that's like a, that's a very like, that's a good tidbit of information. That's a good fun fact. Like, did you know that we had to like the moon yeah. rocks had to go through customs? 
<laughs> yeah, this is the same form as the one that like we keep talking about when you're on the plane, you're coming back in the country and you feel all this It's the same thing. But imagine writing like, yeah, I was at the moon like this didn't come. Bahamas, this came from the moon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. No, I'm definitely not bringing back all of this white Hennessy from Jamaica. But yeah, these, <laughs> the moon rocks need the same need the same legitimacy. That's funny. I like it. But yeah, let's yeah, let's get into that. You, the, you talked about the past few years. They were, you know, they were dicey. COVID was kind of, you know, COVID was seemed to have been unprecedented. I had mentioned before the show, I remember seeing the the manifest or the, the timeline of a certain load I loads I picked up out of Carson, California, which essentially, and I'm not sure if you've been to Carson, but the way the town, you know, the way that the area is set up is it's, and I've been to a similar place, similar place in um, New Jersey, just south of the port of port of Newark. Uh, I'm trying to think. I can't even think of the name of the town because it's, it's not the Port of Newark. It's a little bit south um, sure. uh, w- of where it is. But essentially, everything that exists in this town seems to just be it's warehouses of where container like containers will come off the ship and then the containers go right to those warehouses. And, that, and that's yeah. how, like like because they can't stay at the port. So they go to these warehouses. And at that point, those containers are unloaded at that warehouse. The stuff is offloaded into a warehouse, reorganized to where to to end up, you know, and palletized to whoever's picking it up, like wherever the customer is. Like I know one of the things I did out of New Jersey was I would go uh, to this warehouse and I picked up a full truckload of belts that came from Italy. And then these belts went back to uh, they we, I would bring them actually right back to our my carrier, r r Solutions. They had a warehouse the belts would get offloaded from there. And so this was almost like 3PL work for Walmart because the, at that point, a Walmart driver would then come pick up the belts, either take it to Bentonville or he'd take them right to, or he'd take them to another di- uh, distribution center somewhere. Crazy. And essentially for those loads, I would get to see within the paperwork, I would see like the, even the ship manifest. I could see the, and I would go, you could see the the city it came out of from China and I'd Google maps those cities. And I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. These places look like like uh, hell holes. Number one, no offense, to, to, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, like they're, they're so huge. These ports in China, like it's absolutely insane. But I would see it, and I would see the date the ship left, the name of the ship too, which was always pretty cool. The date the ship left, the date it you know uh, arrived at the port of Long Beach, and there was this huge gap of that time. And I know it doesn't take a month to get from China right. to California on a ship. And then not only that, from when the load got off the ship was almost another several weeks before I was picking it up. So and wow. then you heard it on the news. And like I said, the news, the mainstream media isn't the best barometer of what's going on in transportation. But I don't think we can deny that there were ships waiting off the coast of yeah. uh, the Pacific. And so kind of, yeah, what what issues, what did you see like the last three years, essentially, with COVID? What was what was going on to where it slowed down? Was it because of demand or you know, kind of just talk about your, your experience the last three years. Sure. Yeah. And then the, the ships, you know, I'll start there, the ships all being off the coast, you know, that, that did happen. That's crazy. And it, everything is, it is demand and everything was driven by price. You know, is if people are paying, you know, you heard the stories of people paying $20,000 to get a container from Shanghai to Los Angeles. And previously it was 2000, you know, it's a 10 X price increase. If ocean carriers can charge that, they're going to do that. You know, they're going to, pile as many ships as possible to Los Angeles and Long Beach. And you had new ocean carriers popping up left and right that wanted to get in on the action, right? That wanted to get in and, and move containers. And so 
our infrastructure in Los Angeles and Long Beach. And then it wasn't just there. It happened in Savannah. It happened here in Charleston. It happened at, at different places, probably New York, New Jersey, I'm sure. Um, the infrastructure, the actual physical infrastructure of the ocean terminals that are the cranes working the vessels and everything could not handle that throughput. And so when that happens, there's really just a line that gets backed up of like, you know, it started, there's five, you know, maybe the, there's what, 12 terminals in Los Angeles, Long Beach that are always picking containers off of vessels. Well, if there's 12, there's 30 coming, then you have, you know, the, the other 18 that are sitting out there. And then it just continues to pile up as everyone's ordering stuff. We're all sitting on our couches ordering a new couch or ordering something because we can, you know, we can't, we got, we got the, the uh, COVID checks in, in our bank account and we can't go spend it at restaurants or anything because everything's closed. So people just spend it all online. And that really did, that was the driver of all the demand and all that, what happened with those ships. And so what we saw is like, you know, the vessels get there. Some of the vessels are, you know, operating under certain ocean carriers and get better treatment than others. You know, it's like, may, and I'm not I'm accusing anybody of anything here, but it's like if, if Maersk has APM terminal that they, you know, their same infrastructure and stuff, maybe one of the Maersk vessels jumps in the line a little bit and goes to the terminal first and stuff like that happens. And then to what happened, the, the newer ocean carriers I talked about that came up left and right, that were, that were just like, Hey, we want to get in on the action. They sit out there for 45 days or something because they're the, you know, the lowest priority or whatever you want to call them. And so they, they just come into LA long beach and don't have a terminal appointment or anything. They just got a ship and they're trying to beg any of the terminals to take them in. And so before you know it, you know, something that takes 15 days takes 60. This, this is crazy what you're describing, because this is, I mean, we saw what you just described is exactly what happened in trucking is almost like, so you're saying that in during COVID that there was also a gold rush to get into ocean, like ocean container freight to like buy it, to you know, procure a ship and to move containers. Like you're just the same way people, you know, got, I'm sure a little bit less of volume, but just the same way people saw that there was a bunch of money in trucking, went out, bought trucks, got into this hot market. And then, you know, obviously, you know, people are, are, have, are paying the price for that. Now you're saying that that, that same exact thing happened with ocean containers. Like the people out there, whether it be in America or, or elsewhere, they said, yeah. man, we need to get some ships because everybody's buying <laughs> every, they need containers moved. So they went out and bought ships. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it, you know, maybe it wasn't just like, you know, I mean, you and I, maybe we decided to start an ocean carrier or something right at that time, but the most part it would be an uh, ocean carrier that exists, but their entire business is like Thailand to Japan or, you know, like Singapore to Malaysia or something like that. And they're making, you know, a thousand dollars a container or whatever it is. And then there's all this huge demand for stuff to come into LA. So they're like, wait, instead of doing this and making this much money, I'm just going to take my ship, load it up in China and go to LA <laughs> and charge 20 times the amount. Right. And so this, that was what happened, you know, for the most part. And then uh, the, that demand and price and everything drove the price of the ships up. And so a bunch of the ocean carriers, you know, they have their ships that they own, but then they lease a lot of them from some companies too. And so they would go in and sign, crazy leases, like, you know, $100,000 a day and, and stuff like that to operate these giant vessels. And so that was just, as the price goes up, you know, everybody follows the money and that's what happened. So it, all that happened. And then our physical infrastructure of the actual terminals and the labor and those things could not handle it at all. And so that's what caused that, that huge backup. Right. It, it is, it is, it's actually like it, I can't even put into words how crazy it is that exactly what happened in 
trucking happen with uh, with with boats with ships <laughs> like it's that's nuts like especially with even the idea of like large large ocean container companies leasing out their ships it's almost mimics you know these large carriers who are who would le- you know lease trucks to to people who are like just dying to be an owner operator dying to move freight and it's it's yeah. the same same kind of story running a parallel so that so it was demand that was kind of causing these backlogs but how it affected so for gnosis freight though that must have like that must have screwed up your data like where people like you must have been like your customers obviously who are going off of what you, of the data that you're getting your data like at that point your data is thrown off because of you know kind of unprecedented uh, yeah. market conditions that ruined the the life cycle of this container because it's not the true life cycle isn't truly you know back in existing because of this demand so it must have screwed up your you know how your data worked yeah for sure i mean i'd say the you know as soon as it happened like to say the first couple of weeks whenever there's this huge vessel backlog we don't you know system can be machine learning and ai and everything can be as smart as you want but in order for it to be able to predict something it's got to have some kind of historical data to train itself on right and there is no previous COVID, previous slam in the ports with all these vessels and everything to even train a, a model on. But, you know, what, what we did do is we at least as soon as it happened and as soon as the backup started happening, as soon as we could have some kind of pattern to recognize and you can project it forward and you can say, hey, I know that the trains of time listed on the website says it's 17 days, but it's actually going to be, you know, 43 <laughs> or whatever it is. Because, because we get because the last container we tracked that went through that took. 43 days. And so we, we, we can immediately get some empirical data and start training models that are at least in tune with what's currently happening. No way to kind of predict that and, you know, before it happens, but you can at least adapt really quickly and, and give people realistic expectations. And what you can do too, is like, instead of relying on say the ocean carrier to give an ETA of when the ship is going to get there to get unloaded, the, each of the terminals has their, you know, they have three vessels they're bringing in and then they have a schedule of like, Hey, we're going to work these vessels on this day and so instead of just relying on one source or an eta we'd start using the terminals because they ended up being the ones that were hey we'll take that vessel next and we're going to let it berth tomorrow at 8 a.m we're going to work it for 12 hours or whatever and so we started taking in different data sources and using that to help people understand when they could actually expect for stuff to arrive no nice so uh i i got um kind of two two quick questions for you I before we get because I want to get into something about the testimonials for what your customers get to use for you and I want to know how it maybe saves consumers money but just real quick how long does it take for a ship to leave Shanghai and get to California what's what is that what's the actual like timeline of that yeah I mean there's some some different like uh speed fast services and things but the normal transit times like 14 to 17 days depending um, and that's like, you know, straight from Shanghai to, to Los Angeles, probably actually probably lower than that. I mean, if you just go straight out of Shanghai and you go straight into LA, you get a terminal to birth you and stuff. It's what, 12, 13 days, maybe, but something like that. And so then yeah. when you, that, that, and then you, you take the 12 or 13 day, for example, and then you look at adding 30 days, that's literally the ship could have gone back and forth like three times. <laughs> it was like, it's crazy. So that that's where that that magnitude of the delay was was insane. But yeah, but still less than two weeks, which I think is fascinating. Now, when it comes to we mentioned it earlier, this demurrage and, and detention that goes on at ports. You know, I was, I was going through your website and because this costs because when it comes to demurrage and detention 
at the end of the day, it must somehow roll back onto the consumer. And, right. you know, it, you know, the, straight from your website, it says that, you know, $12 million or, or more has been saved and demerge in detention. And essentially that's your data kind of saving all that money. So at some point in time, at least pre 2017, the ocean container freight industry was sometimes it was costing, I'd, I'd imagine the American consumer, $12 million or more in this demerge and, and detention costs. Right. Yeah. And so that the demerge pieces, you know, that's, that's where like most, most of our, our shipper customers will, will focus on them because that's a lot of those case studies. That is where we look at what they're paying for like the data they start with Gnosis and then through the first six months with implementing and getting the data right and everything, that's where those savings immediately happen. Um, and to your point is like, you know, I, I don't know, I'm sure, but it, it is like the transportation is just as a line item that goes into the cost of everything, right? So if those demerge charges are just accepted as a part of doing business, then eventually it's passed on the onto the consumer, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, that the, the $12 million example you had, we, we've seen crazy, you know, a lot higher numbers than that. We, we have six or seven case studies of the exact same demerge saving thing. Um, and it's always in the, the double digit millions of dollars over a course of six months or whatever it is. Um, and that, yeah. and that's, it, it was crazy a couple of years ago, you know, whenever, and it was, some of it was by choice. You know, if you're a, a big retailer and your warehouse is full and you're trying to fulfill orders and stuff and you don't have anywhere for containers to go, you just say, whatever, we're going to pay $500 a day and just leave it at the terminal. <laughs> it's, it's storage. Right. And then that's, that's where you know it became a problem for the terminal because then they have all the full containers sitting there that they're holding for people and then they don't have anywhere to put any new ones um so that it's you know some of it's by design by choice whatever um uh, it's crazy to see those numbers but it's real we've seen it so many times with these large companies that are managing these uh, thousands of containers coming in maybe they have a great plan of where to put them maybe they don't and so just by us putting all the data in one place doing the calculations in real time about how much is all this going to cost you bringing up to the top like hey if you don't move these five containers they're each going to cost you an extra thousand dollars tomorrow according to the contracts and things that's where those savings numbers come from it's just putting together a bunch of data and surfacing the exceptions to the top to, to help people understand how to handle it you know it's crazy you said you went to school for uh finance financial um you know, yep. for financial studies in, in grad school, uh, correct, right? That was Georgia Tech, you said? You, that's when you right. leaned into finance. And what you're that's talking right. about, what, what Gnosis is doing is exactly what a financial advisor or a planner would do. Your, your data essentially goes in, like assists these companies to help uh, you know, diagnose and dissect where they're, where, they're, where they're losing money and just the data on things like getting accurate ETAs, the status, the last three days, outgate, empty return stuff, just that stuff right there. It gives such a diagnosis to their spreadsheets or, or whatever, you know, whatever they're using, just their overall accounting to where just by the implementation of that data in their business plan and whatever their day to day is, is drawing down costs. And I think what I like the what I like the most about this Gnosis story is, you know, a lot of times when it comes to freight tech, um, you know, especially especially if it comes to stuff like TMS, you know, type software or whatever it is, when it comes to a lot of freight tech stuff, most of it, you know, is you never hear about freight tech that's ever benefiting 
truck drivers, so to speak. And, you know, this is, this is a trucking show. And what I especially like about this story is your data at the end of the day does trickle back down to that port driver, to somebody, to somebody like me who is driving out to Carson, California or driving out to, um, you know, the port of Baltimore, because if that data is being implemented by the carrier, uh, the, the drage carrier, the, the ocean container, if the data is being used, you're, you're, these drivers are sitting for less, they're able to drive more. And so it's a freight tech company that truly has a rollout benefit that does come down to the driver. Whereas a lot of times, and I, you know, and I talk about this, you know, I talk about this on the show too, is that we see technology enter this industry and it becomes another burden onto the truck driver. It's almost another regulation the driver has to deal with or something else that's either tracking them or whatever it is. And I think that that's the best part. So, I mean, when it comes to advocating for, for uh, Gnosis, man, I'm going to be, I'm going to be pounding the war drum for you guys because what you're doing sounds like it can have an inherent benefit to the guys, you know, the guys moving, moving the freight. And for those people who work on those ships, I can only imagine the quality of life, the people, and that's a whole other thing. I'd love to dive into that topic is the, the whatever labor standards go on on these ships. And I kind of want to, that's what I kind of wanted to dive into next because it involves, because this is what's most interesting to me. And I think when it comes to ocean container freight, and I think what the most frightening part about ocean container freight is, is some are things like, well, I want to get into the weaponization of, of China's supply chain and kind of how the global economy is. But I also want to talk about something that, because people don't like this and it's, and it has to do with the Jones act. And I remember I was trying to lobby early on to my congressman and I live in Texas and I got redistricted. So I have this new congressman. But either way, there was this one bill called the Ship It Act that was um, that was supposed to that was uh, introduced in in Congress. And I was talking to somebody who worked for uh, my congressman at the time. And this Ship It Act would have. It was supposed to do a lot where land would have been allocated because, yeah, these containers were stacking up in Savannah. They were they were creating skyscrapers out there at the port of Savannah. So it would have allocated certain land near the ports, federally owned land for where these containers can go because they had nowhere to go. But it also one of the biggest things would have suspended the Jones Act. And then that's when I started yep. kind of like peeling the layers back of that that onion. And it was kind of a libertarian based bill. There was it, it was kind of bipartisan, too, though. There's really no. There was absolutely nothing politicized about it. And I think it would have honestly probably eased up some tension that was going on with ocean container freight going on. I'd have to go look at the bullet points again. But how does something like the Jones Act affect, you know, how the the economy works in the United States? Is it is it outdated? Uh, We still need it. And and for those people who don't know what the Jones Act is, if you want to kind of go into it. Sure. Yeah, well, you know, what is, what is the, the Jones Act? It's like, you know, it has to be in order for something to call multiple U.S. ports. It's got to be a U.S. owned ship run the U.S. flag and something else. But the the implications of it and it, it being I know, to your what you said, is it, is it outdated? Our opinion? Yes. You know, I don't I don't get too political and like, you know, what what we think. And, and but, but that's what Michael, our CRO, and I talk about it all the time is like, that's just something that's been around, what, 100 years. And we it was originally put in place for national security implications of like, hey, if it's going to do if it's going to be at these U.S. ports then it needs to be something controlled by us. Um, but I mean, that's that's the problem is like there there's so many ways that without that, that we could have alleviated and done some things is like, 
let's put it on a ship and move some things to the up the Mississippi River, you know, or like let's let's move, take something and put it on a vessel in Savannah and maybe move it up to Charleston. Are you there? There's all these things we could have done that's pretty cool that the Jones Act kind of prevents. Um, and so that's that's where we it, it just needs to be looked at again. And then it sounds like there was a bill that, that you were lobbying for, and, and there's I don't know if it would have temporarily suspended it or probably just needs to be totally rewritten to accommodate the the current way that things move around the world, right? Yeah. So you're you're saying things would move a little bit more efficiently, especially in the US. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And there's, you know, you have the the Jones cares that uh, you know, the was it tote maritime, uh there, there's a couple of those that, that do like the, you know. Costa Rica or not Costa Rica, like Puerto Rico and Jacksonville. And like they do some of those moves and this Matson, you know, Matson's a U.S. So that like those guys are great. They have really specific roles in container freight of moving things between um, places in the, in the U.S. You know, I think Toad also has like an Alaska service, for example. Right. And that's great. But that's we need to, to somehow make it to where people can do more things like that. And it would, it would give us a whole lot of, a lot more options the next time something like COVID happens. So the next time there's a lot of congestion and things that we have more options at our disposal, that's not limited by a, you know, somewhat outdated legal reason. Yeah, no, I, I, I basically kind of agree with you when you read it at face value as like somebody who considers anybody who considers themselves like a patriotic American, when you read it, you're like, man, you're like, hell yeah. Like, uh, like it, it makes you, you're like, yeah, it should be, you know, it should be American. Like it's a, a by word. But when you like zoom out, you're like, wait a minute, it's kind of, it's kind of holding us back. And if anything, if it was kind of rolled back, it would probably lead to a reduction in prices of stuff. Sure. Yep. Yep. Oh no, go on. Sorry. You were, you were speaking. I, I was I was just agreeing with you. You know, I mean, as anytime anything gets more efficient, then prices could go down, right? If we make mm-hmm. things easier, you know, with, with all the stuff we've been talking about with demerge and things, if we can eliminate those things, prices should go down. So if we have more options at our disposal to move things around the country and make goods flow, you know, the, what we've been talking about the whole time, this crazy world of transportation that we live in, if, we're, if options are cut off and it causes problems, then prices go up. So if we can reduce, you know, something like that cutting off options then things would get more efficient and prices should go down just naturally absolutely and kind of kind of breaking off from this and we were talk, talking before the show and I'm a, I'm a big fan of big fan of Ross Kennedy and his content and what he does and he he's a big fan of you guys but he he has been beating the war drum him and John Conrad uh, they both beat the okay. war drum for um Sorry, this pop-up just came up. They've been beating the war drum about America's shipbuilding capabilities, um, the idea of maritime overall maritime strength, especially when it comes to shipping. Ross has specifically mentioned uh, how China has weaponized the supply chain. He refers to, and, and I don't want to uh, possibly ruin any relationships, but he's referred to Costco, C-O-S-C-O, as the, the, the Chinese East India trading company so to speak, and how China essentially operates under mercantilism. It's not capitalism. They, they, are, con- yeah. they are conquering the, the, they conquer the market. It's truly not a free market in what we're dealing with. And I mean, do you see this? I mean, it, essentially, and I was just, a friend of mine just had back surgery uh, recently. He, he had a, you know, herniated disc, whatever. And 
uh, he has this medication uh, for something that he has to take uh, for like a couple weeks or something post-surgery. Yeah. And I looked at the back of the origin of where this medicine comes from. And the medicine's created in China. And essentially, China holds hostage um, the animal, the nutrients for animal feed. Our pharmaceuticals are held hostage by China. And look, I'm not saying that we shouldn't trade globally and that ships shouldn't like we've been doing this stuff since, you know, you know, the Dutch, you know, you know, the Dutch have been doing this. The Dutch East India Company, we've been trading and sending ships all around the world forever. And it's not never going away, whether they were going across the Mediterranean in the Roman Empire, whatever. The you know bills of ladings have been around for over 500 years. Obviously, the world is going to trade. We know that. But at the end of the day, at some point. And I mean, even on even on your like for Gnosis Freight's future, you know, what is the real what is the real capability of American maritime power? Because it seems like I mean, because Maersk is a uh, is a Dutch company, I believe. Right. Or are they. Yeah. Denmark. They're, they're yeah. in Denmark. Yeah. Like, Headquartered in, in Copenhagen. Yeah. And, and they're and they're a top dog. And then you have I believe there, there's a French company that's up there. Where so we have all of these ships that come in. There's so much we import in this country. If we right. import so much, why are we not manufacturing the most ships? Yeah, you know, that's a great just, question. I kind of just want to have a casual conversation about like your your thoughts on yeah. that. Like, yeah, well, so being uh, as much in the data and as much communicating with all the ocean carriers and everything, I've t- I've our CRO Michael uh, worked at Maersk. Uh, worked at Maris before he came to work with us. Um, and, and I, you know, a couple of years ago went to him and I was like, Hey, like, why don't we have a United States, like a large ocean carrier, you know, cause we had ABL was American president lines. And then now that was uh, purchased by CMA. It's a part of the CMA, which is, which is French. Right. And so you think like you, know, you have CMA is French Maersk is uh, in Denmark. And then you have MSC, which is Italian, the Italian family, but then it's headquartered in Geneva. Hapag Lloyd is German. You know, you can go down the line and like attribute like each of the largest ocean carriers in the world to a country that's not the United States. So it's like a joke with Michael, with Michael and I. That we're like, we're gonna start an American ocean carrier. We're 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 gonna be the we're gonna create one. So that's like it's funny, but like we talk about it seriously. Like, hey, we want an American ocean carrier. We want to do that ourselves. Um, so that, I mean, that's I don't I don't know why. You know, like I said, we have the Jones Act carriers. We have the Matson and Tote and some of those people, which is cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I don't know the answer. It seems like that'd be smart for us to do. Speaking specifically on China, you know, I'm not the the best person. Somebody like Ross is definitely the best person or, you know, Michael, even our, our CRO, I keep mentioning, they, they have strong opinions and know a lot more about the weaponization of the Chinese supply chain and, and how that kind of can affect us. What I'll say from a factual standpoint is, you know, you keep hearing all these things about nearshoring, you know, our, our trade with Mexico is increasing and we're, uh, diversifying overseas to where we're getting more to Vietnam and India and, and Malaysia and places like that. But if, I mean, you can look at like, all that, all that sounds cool. And it's like, we're diversifying, we're doing these things, but China is still in terms of ocean freight far and above our largest trading partner. And it's like not close, you know, I, I don't know what the exact percentages are, but as you know, say for hyperbole, it was it used to be 90. Now it's 80 percent. It's, it's still, you know, far and above the place that most goods that we have come from. 
And so I still think we're a long way from like, oh, you know, we're not reliant on China for X, Y, Z, whatever it might be. I think it'll get there as we continue to do all the things we're doing. But right now it's still, in terms of ocean freight, definitely our largest trading partner by a long shot. Yeah, it's just wild to think, uh, considering like, you know, my parents right, and your, your parents are, are, everybody kind of remembers the, like how the Cold War was. The idea of you know how things were basically from post World War II to you know, essentially when the Berlin Wall came down, and you think like we weren't trading with the Soviet Union, we weren't you know there were, we weren't yeah. using you know we weren't buying their oil or, or anything like that. There was no like we had you know embargoes with these countries. I mean, we still have an embargo with Cuba, and like we we uh, for all purposes like the Soviet Union was persona non grata or, or whatever but here but now we're still in this kind of new cold war which is almost and it's a and it's a technology race it's a, uh, a uh, an espionage there's probably still espionage races going on we definitely have you know CCP operatives probably definitely operating within the US and Canada North America but yet at the same time the supply chain can't function without our partnership with China and and what's crazy is who does like it's just and this is just me thinking out loud is who holds the upper hand? Because in a way, you could say China holds the upper hand because they could just say, oh, we're not we don't need to send our boats to you. But then also, if they don't, you're looking at, uh, you know, China's billion some odd people population not making any money. So it's like, yeah, so we, we yeah. are. The it's we, we are yeah. the demand in that case. It's interesting. So it, I don't know, you know, in that like. Who would be better off if we just stop? I don't know what the answer is. Uh, I was, you saw me typing a second ago. I pulled up really quick on, on some of our data. And it was like for the past month, I think 33% of containerized imports came from China, something like 32, 33%. And this number may not be exact, it's from some US customs data and stuff. And then 6% is Vietnam, and Vietnam was second. And that's in terms of ocean freight. Of course, our trade with Mexico, you know, there was some article recently where our actual trade with Mexico did surpass in terms of, I don't know, dollars of goods or something in China. But just from an ocean freight perspective, China is still the largest in, in 5X second place. Um, yeah, so that's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, it's crazy to see that growth in, in Vietnam, like talk about what a yep. total split from, yeah, a country we like we're at war with for so long. And now, I mean, I have a, a friend of mine is now he's over there right now. I, I uh, this other girl I know from high school, she lived there for two years and like, yeah. And yeah, we're yeah. Their, their economy is like, even, even though they still live under this communist type government, their economy is uh, exploded in growth and, uh, and stuff like that. If now I know, yeah, I know we're running on time, but I do want to know this because we're talking about China and their shipping market. You have relationships with ocean carriers I'm curious about that. You've, I'm assuming you've been on a, a cargo ship. You must have been on them and, and seen them. Who are who are? The, what's the labor look like? Who's working on these ships that we? Because we know at least in the ports in the U.S., this is uh, you know union labor, longshoremen. But you know who are like who like because we look at truck drivers and there's four million of them or so moving freight across the U.S. at every, any given time, and they're all you know you know crazy guys like me with a mullet running, you know, running up and down doing push-ups. You've got, you know, all these different yeah. uh, people. You have Chris Thomas out there with his pneumatic tank, well, you know, all of us and all of our freight nerd friends. But what, yeah, what's the labor look like on a ship? Are Americans doing this job? Like, do you know, like, is this a job that Americans should sign up for? Uh, it's just, this is just yeah. general curiosity. Like who, who's working on these ships? Is it a viable career? 
Like, cause I know a friend of mine's dad was a merchant Marine. We have schools for merchant Marines. What's, what's that look like? You know, just, you know? yeah. Uh, and embarrassingly, you know, you mentioned like I've been in several terminals and been like there when they're working and everything, but I've never toured a ocean vessel. That's like, I want to so bad. I've, I've, I've like been up close and been, you know, the port of Charleston across, we have a great relationship with them obviously. And we, go there for port tours all the time. It's my favorite thing ever to, to nerd out on the actual operations of everything. Um, but yeah, I mean, being inside of one, seeing the people on it, I don't know. You know, it's, it's so cool. It's, it's sad. That, and that's that embarrassing. Like I look at this data all day long. I look at all the cells in our database of like, Hey, I'm the inside of a vessel. At least I know I, I can literally map out, like you give me the six numbers of like, the container positioning, the stow plan. And I can tell you, oh, it's like, that means it's on this column, this row, and it, like what it means and what I know what it looks like inside, but I've never been there myself. Would love to. And I, that's that's on my list of asks with their ocean carriers that we have relationships with that are continuing to work with is I want to go on one of those one day. And maybe, you know, I think Michael, our, our CEO, that he, he worked at Maersk, he did like get on one and go from port to port one time. And he says the coolest thing. I'm sure it'd be super cool, right? I see like these videos of some of the the merchant marines that put it on YouTube and stuff of them going through the Panama Canal or like something like that would just be yeah. fascinating and all. Yeah. yeah. That that's like yeah, I, I'm I'm not gonna lie. That would be like one of the coolest things to do is either go yeah go through the Panama Canal, go through the Suez Canal, go around the like the yeah. uh, the what Cape of Good Hope, right? Uh, is that is that under yeah. uh, like those under yeah, South those, Africa. Like, yeah, under South Africa, like those like shipping lanes, like to be able to see and, and do that is like fascinating. I got I got two two more uh, solid questions for you. One one's an easy one. What besides Charleston, so to speak? What's what's your favorite port? I'm sure you've seen a couple. What's your? Do you have a favorite one you work with, or the easiest, or the coolest looking, or the you know most advanced? Who or yeah? What's your favorite and or who's the best port? Like who's the what's the best port in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. All right. I don't want to hurt any feelings. I'll get I'll, I'll give a couple of answers. One, um, you know, we're, we're in Charleston. I support, Charleston's the best. I'm going to say that and just throw it out there that they're the best, of course. But I'm super, super impressed and have been for a while with the Port of Norfolk. The the Port of Virginia is doing a lot of really cool things. They're, you know, kind of leading the charge in the U.S. for modernizing and doing some cool stuff. I was at a conference recently with uh with their ceo and with, with a couple of people from there and, and they're doing some really cool things you know and they, they've got capacity they're fully embracing automation and, and doing some stuff that's really cool um so i, I throw i throw them up there another kind of funny you know i, I mentioned at the beginning of it of, of this that my wife kind of makes fun of me because i nerd out on some terminals and all that kind of i was actually in uh barcelona summer or last may maybe and we did a hike like up like you know, just outside the city, like a hike up the mountain and you got to the top and we're visiting this like historical monument and you look over the side and the APM Barcelona uh, terminal was down there. And this it's is wild Spain. because I'm in Spain. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'm used to like, you know, Port of Charleston, there's all these people with hearts on, they're operating cranes and they got the office and they're, it's busy, busy, really cool when you take the tour at the, the Barcelona terminal, there's nobody there. It is fully automated trucks driving from point A to point B and containers are getting off like it was empty, but it, it was still operating. You know, I sat there and watched it for 10 minutes and it's it's still operating. The containers are coming off the vessel. There's like, you know, little 
uh, like, I don't even know what you call them, the little yard things that take a container from one point to another and stack it. All of it was going, but there was nobody there. It looks completely empty. And so that's interesting is like, we consider the United States like forward and everything. And I don't, I don't want to get, I, we don't need and, and embrace a lot of the technology at terminals and, and those things, but it is crazy how far behind we are from a lot of other countries, specifically in Europe, probably for embracing that technology actually at the terminal. Yeah, I know that that's a whole other conversation because I know at least in the U.S., I mean, the uh, I, the unions probably do give a lot of pushback on that. There's probably a lot of legal yeah. and and there, there's they're probably still strong in that in that regard. Whereas in Europe, yeah, Europe has labor unions and I know Spain probably has their own political issues. But um, I mean, those people could may, may have. Found, yeah, the people who, who were automated you know, odds are, I just feel like maybe in a place like China, they were able to find a place that has a prevailing wage or not China, Spain. They might have found another place that has a prevailing wage. And at the end of the day, and I know, and like you said, I don't want to get like political or anything, but those like those ports are automated. At least those workers who did maybe work at ports in places like Spain don't have to like sweat or look or look around, look over their shoulder because they don't have to pay for health care. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, so yeah. there's little yeah. there's little things like that. That's. That's my biggest thing when it comes to, when it comes to automation in the U.S. So people don't realize it's not just the taking of jobs is because when that job goes away, people are forced with the gap of losing their benefits. And I think that that's like a, a kind of an unspoken. That's something that doesn't get talked about enough. It's just like, yeah, eventually the market figures itself out. You'll find another job. But if you're a guy who's working and then your job gets automated and your wife has cancer, then what? And I think that's the that's me just thinking philosophically. Yeah. But la uh, sure. la last question, last question for you, kind of kind of going into this. Um, like I said, I love the Gnosis story. I think what you guys have got, what you and uh, your CEO Austin have built, is something that has a huge trickle down effect, even to the driver, uh, because we talk about it a lot in the show. Wait detention times, and I'm sure, and I sure as shit would never want to be a port driver. Uh, and I and I I know people who are port drivers. Uh, and I'm sure, and it's because it's a lot of waiting and stuff like that. Apparently, you guys are kind of easing that burden and making it a little bit easier, even down the driver. So I love it. But what's what's the future kind of looking like for you guys? What's uh, you know what's Gnosis? Is there you know you don't have to give away any uh, you know uh, trade oh, secrets yeah. if you don't want somebody. I'm, and it's not like I'm going to steal, but yeah, you guys have a plan of like kind of what you see, where you see Gnosis going in the next five, ten years. Yeah, and I'll I'll say. You know, the, you're talking about like working with carriers and, and drivers. That's something that is, I'd say, you know, we, we've been doing it for a little while, but it's relatively new compared to our shipper platform and our customers and things. And we love it. You know, to, to your point is like, if we, we, we want to, instead of taking the approach of, hey, the shipper's our customer. So Mr. Carrier, give me all of your information or else, you know, like that, that's, we feel like that's kind of been the MO to your point for a long time is like, the drivers and the carriers are a source of data to for us to go turn around and sell. We're trying to to approach it from the partnership perspective of, you know, we know that that you guys are necessary. You you are the the backbone of a, a lot of the supply chain and how it works. And so if we can come to you with a solution that makes your life easier and not not just come to you and say, hey, like, give us your information, but hey, we have these things. We can tell you when these containers are going to be available. We can give you better predictions and and technology for you to use and things and try to make it as easy as possible for you guys. 
to make it more of a partnership and an exchange than a, than a one directional, give us your information so we can show our customer. Right. And so that's, I, I speak on, on that particularly because that's something that we've made it into the, the drayage, uh, both broker and the individual uh, carriers into that market have been working with them. And so that, you know, gives us a great partnership and then also makes it easier when we're working with shippers. If we have carriers we've worked with before, we can literally recommend carriers that we work with and are integrated with to the large shippers that are our customers too. We kind of get that network effect, which is, which is awesome. Um, so I'll say that's, you know, expanding our uh, customer base and the different verticals that, that we've talked about is obviously on the roadmap. Um, we have focused our, our data and everything has been focused on North America forever. And that's really just by demand. You know, we we embrace the, the class one railroads and the terminals and in, in places in the U.S. and Canada and Mexico just by the customers that we had and what they needed. Um, but then we've expanded into Europe because the same people who are importing into uh, U.S. and Mexico and Canada are also importing into Rotterdam and Antwerp and Felixstowe and any of those places. And so our our data granularity and coverage is is excellent in Europe and continues to grow. And so that global expansion is is really cool. And then just, you know, the visibility piece, like I talked about at the beginning, the container lifecycle management is what we really want to get to and what we're doing for a lot of customers. That just the visibility isn't enough. So all the execution around it is what we've done and we continue to do. We've done invoice auditing. You know, it's like getting you know, the contracts in for ocean or drayage or whatever it is, just getting it in and doing like a pre-audit almost where we can calculate things in real time and forecast finances and do those things. Those, those are things all around containers that we do. Um, the actual allocation of giving a container to a driver like yourself and giving you the information you need to, to be able to pick it up. And so it's instead of just focusing so much on the visibility, focusing on the actual execution of everything around it and doubling down on that. We continue to do that. That's our plan for the future. Continue to invest heavily in, in our tech and in our ability to, to continue to do that and just bring solutions to the market. No, that's awesome, man. I, I, I'd put a bet on Gnosis any day. And I think breaking into the carrier side of things, because I mean, I can't tell you enough. I mean, just from what you guys talked about with, e just from ETAs and knowing this timing and having that data, I mean, you go on, you know, you go on Twitter. I mean, and we, you know, we've been buzzing on Freight X, uh, you know, just talking yeah. about Freight Nerd stuff, but you will hear time and time again. And this has happened to me where you have shown up to a shipper and the load's not even ready or the load's not there or shipper. Or, uh, yeah. Specifically a shipper, the load's not ready. The load's not there yet. For some reason, the rate con, what the broker got was, Hey, you're picking up at this warehouse at this time. Yeah. You know, you have, a, you have an appointment time. This isn't like first come first serve and anything that could, because I'm sure ocean and ocean container freight is far more vast than just the freight that moves in the U S because there's so many containers, but that is happening daily hundreds of times everywhere of trucks showing up places where a load is not ready or even likewise at the receiving end at the receiving end that warehouse that receiver and that whoever needs that product is not ready for it and they're either over and they could be over inventory and i think some of these issues have to do with the elasticity that's happened with covid with needing a whole bunch yeah. of inventory because who knows if we're gonna have another lockdown or you know kind of that back and forth so i think that comes down to the those individual businesses making their making their own inventory decisions. But I think, yeah, cracking more on the carrier side and providing those solutions. That's good, man. Yeah. I mean, it's just great to hear that you're not just 
hey, we're Gnosis. We got something great. We're going to sit back on our laurels and you can use this if you want. Yeah. You're still full, full steam ahead. It's awesome. A fantastic story, man. I can't thank you enough for coming on for, and you know, before we, before we sign off, let the people know, uh, you know, where can they find you uh, if they're interested in talking yeah. to you about Gnosis? Uh, are you, are you, and even this as well, cause I do it. You guys hiring people at all? Like if there's anybody listening, a freight tech guy who wants to maybe, or sure. a broker, somebody wants to break in. Yeah. Give us a little bit more information about where they can find you and, and where they can, uh, you know, learn more about Gnosis. Definitely. And uh, you know, you mentioned a few times, uh, you know, Reed and his, his lost freight, uh, community, you know, we, we have a couple of our engineers here who are all in and it's, in, it's like, you know, we have like our solution and Gnosis and we've, we've been in the international space for so long, but are some of our engineers that, that talk to, to read and, and some of the, the on freight X and on other places we're we're starting to get the itch of like, Hey, we're doing this over here, but we could just kind of change it up. And that'd be super helpful for these people that we're talking to. And that's, you know, the, the greatest thing that, I, you know, I, I love and, employees tell me they love, you know, they could be lying, but they, they say that it's just the ability to solve new problems all the time, talk to people and just take the the tech that we have and we continue to, to adapt on and try to solve a new problem. You know, so, so that's, I, I love that. And I wanted to throw that out there that, that we're embracing the community and want to go to all the events and talk to people and continue to try to solve problems as it's all been super fun. I mean, Jake Hoffman you know, on, on LinkedIn, I, I post a bunch of crap on LinkedIn, try to try to do some stuff on there and get some engagement and have some fun. Uh, X to Jake underscore Hoffman 19, I think is my my username on there. We are hiring. We're always hiring. Uh, we forever, you know, we're, we're hiring some really specific software engineering roles, but we also have really embraced and, and we think it, we hold it, we know it's true and we want to continue to do that. We like to hire smart people. Maybe they don't fit the exact criteria of, you know, have three years of experience coding this kind of JavaScript or whatever it is. Some of our best engineers and our leaders in the company are generalists that we hired in, you know, investment banking, uh, played baseball and got his MBA, uh, just like like different different things like that. They, they really you know worked in consulting at one of the big four. And then now they're engineers here and they, they come in and they just have a hunger to learn and they learn our tech stack and they learn how the industry works. And we just we hire people that are that are young and hungry and want to do that. And they come in and succeed. And now they're software engineers or leading the product team or whatever they're doing. So it's pretty cool to see. Um, we probably have we have some job postings on our website. You can always reach out to me on LinkedIn too. So that's it. That's awesome. Really, like you said that I do like to, to always keep things like entrepreneurial and, you know, always on that professional aspect. And because that's a huge thing out there, people, especially like millennials, you know, job descriptions, wanting this much experience for this job when really, even though like, yeah, say for example, yeah, it could be a guy who worked at one of those big four consulting firms. Sure. He yep. might not know what, uh, you know, he might not know anything about U.S. customs or, who Maersk is or anything about the industry, but man, if somebody's going to, if somebody's willing to just dive, dive in to this industry and like really wants to learn, they're going to come at it with new ideas. And, you know, this is something this, like, this is something, and I, this translates, this is something I learned. They told us in boot camp when I joined the Marines was like, so the guys who shot, like a lot of the guys who shot expert, like on the rifle range were the people who like never, never shot a, a gun before. And where, and sometimes the people the worst yeah. are the ones who've been, you know, they grew up hunting, shooting their whole life because they have all these bad habits and like they, they have their own way of thinking where when you just look, when you kind of have a fresh start on something and you've jumped in willing to learn, you're more likely to pay a little bit more attention, 
and stuff like that. So that's awesome that you guys, uh, that's kind of your guys standard, but Hey man, I can't thank you enough for coming on. We'll catch up. We'll definitely have to catch up soon. We'll talk, we'll talk more on ocean container freight the next, the next time something lights up in the supply chain crisis, but uh, no man, be safe out there and hope to talk to you soon. Mike, appreciate it so much. Really enjoyed it. Hope to stay in touch and maybe see you in an event or something soon. Oh yeah, for sure, man. We will, we will definitely be in touch. I, I owe you a beer. All right. That sounds great, man. Yes, sir. Take care. Well, that'll do it guys for episode 103 of the Lumbar Trucking Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, this is great. We're changing it up. We're, we're bringing on every single link of the supply chain, but drivers more. I just was reached out to by another driver who commented on one of my TikTok videos. Uh, he's got some updates. Uh, he was a former guest on this show. So I'm already looking forward to bringing him back on and just getting the story out there. You heard it right from Mr. Hoffman himself. Their Gnosis Freight is all about solving problems. And that's what we talk about this on this show is solving problems. We don't know the answers. Gordon and I have discussed this uh, quite often. We don't know the answers. We don't know how to solve these problems. We don't know how to fix the parking issue. We don't, we don't know if we're just supposed to get allocation of state money. Should the free market take care of it? We, we don't know. But what we do know is that we can continue to keep talking about the problems. And by talking, that way we can find solutions. If you stay silent, if you don't have these discussions, especially across something as vast as a supply chain, we just listened to an entire episode about how there's thousands upon thousands of ships moving across this country, not this country, across the entire planet right now. We're even just going from Puerto Rico to Jacksonville, Florida, from Taiwan to J Japan, from Taiwan to Singapore, not just the ships going from China to the United States, from the U.S. to Antwerp, Belgium, from Africa, you know, from the South Africa and the African coastlines all over the place. There's so many links in the supply chain. It somehow works, but it has its issues. So we need to keep talking. We need to keep talking to anyone who's involved in it. So drivers, brokers, anybody out there, we need to get your story, but always especially drivers too, because we care about some of the issues that are going on in the industry. As I've said before, many times on this show, a lot of the issues we face, what's going on with the labor in this country regarding truck drivers is something that is unsustainable. The driver shortage narrative uh, is essentially uh, doing not helping the industry at all. We've seen this happen out in Phoenix. This is happening at, at an Amazon warehouse where their turnover is so high, they're running at the risk of not having anybody that they can just rehire for in, the, in this area around Phoenix. And eventually that same thing is going to happen in trucking, where even if you continue to keep importing drivers and luring them in from uh, you know countries and from different countries from around the world where the, you know, you're offering them a wage that's more than their own country, eventually the working conditions, they'll say, why am I doing this? Eventually at some point is they're going to gain some sort of, you know, they're going to gain the confidence to say, wait a minute, things need to be a little bit different, especially for all the time that they're waiting where they've left their country to try to make a better life for their family. And then they still get here and they have to deal with the issues that are going on in the industry. That's the road we're on. So most of all, this show is still here and we'll still continue to have the conversations to solve the problems when it comes to trucking, shipping, receiving, ocean containers, everything out there. 
all things supply chain. We're looking to solve those problems. Appreciate you all once again for listening. Catch you on the next one. Please stay safe out there. And like I said, the holiday season is coming up. Get out there. Show some love to, to your neighbors, people in your community, wh whatever it may be. Just go out there and spread some positivity. We owe that. I've said this before about how we use social media, about how we uh, communicate with other people. When you look at the environment, if you were to take a barrel of oil and dump it in the river, odds are you uh, wouldn't want your family drinking from that river. You're polluting that river. And the internet works the same way. When you dish out there, you know, it's one thing to have a sense of humor, but if all you're dishing out there is constant negativity, hate and discontent, well, guess what? Guess what that does to the environment? Eventually it leaks out into, you know, the, the parts of society that need it the least. Uh, and really they need us all at our best. So once again, take care. Uh, happy holidays. I'm sure I will get a couple more episodes out before Christmas, regardless, but enjoy your December. Uh, this is a phrase I've been kicking at my Orange Theory classes. Uh, it's something from the NFL. Remember December. Uh, it's just the last little bit of parting advice of, you know, it doesn't matter how you play in week one of the NFL. It matters about how you're playing in December. Uh, and the same thing attributes to life. Guess what? It feels like just yesterday we were probably ringing in 2023. And guess what? We're here. Now, for me, especially 2023 was probably my longest year ever. Uh, a very tumultuous year, to say the least. Um, it, it, there's not many year on record that has felt any any longer than 2023. I can tell you that. I feel like I've you know lived two lifetimes alone. But for many people, it's gone by very quick. Well, guess what? Now we're here. What happened between January and November is moot. Guess what? It's over. You can't go back. All we have is right now. This is the final push to all out that we have that heads into uh, yet another year where we want to maintain, you know, remain positive. And a good way to do that is by spreading that positivity. Text an old friend, give him a shout out, give him a phone call, anything like that. You know, just tell somebody you love them today, especially on a day like today, December 14th, uh, recognizing a, a tragedy that happened uh, very close to home uh, for me. You know, just we need, we need a little bit more love out there in the world, especially during the holiday season. But that's going to do it for me in episode 103 here at the Lombard Trucking Show. With that, everyone, we're going back to the bench.